The religious landscape in America is presently characterized by the rise of the nuns and the duns. You're probably familiar with the nuns, an increasing segment of our population who, when they are asked on surveys about their religious preference, they check none. But unfortunately, along with the nuns are the duns. Terms like deconstruction of faith and exvangelical are trending in America because more and more, especially millennials and Gen Z, are walking away from the faith. And as these walk away from the faith, they leave others to doubt their own faith. How should the church respond to a speak your truth, America? How should you respond when someone that you know and love walks away from the faith that they once claimed? How do you respond to this growing trend? Well, Jude has a timely message for us. Take your copy of God's Word, please. Turn to the book of Jude, which is the next-to-last book of the Bible right before Revelation. If you're using the Bible that we provide for you, it's on page 1027. Jude has a timely message for us because the situation in Jude is that some in the church are riding motorcycles. Others <laughs> trying to speak while they're riding motorcycles. Now, the situation in Jude is that some in the church are walking away from the faith and others are doubting their faith. And the reason that that's happening is because there are influential people within the church that are corrupting the gospel with their false teaching. They're heretics, and they're intentionally influencing the church with a false gospel. And this little letter from Jude to those Christians in that church, it's a little letter that packs a powerful punch because Jude calls those Christians to, quote, contend for the faith. Look in verse 3. Jude says, contend for the faith. Look in verse 21. He says, keep yourself in the love of God. And then look at verse 22 and 23. Help others to stay in the love of God. So this little letter really addresses the whole topic of the degeneration of faith inside and outside the church. And some of us have experienced that, haven't we? We have watched those that we know and love very well walk away from the faith. And our response is critical. So we're going to be studying the little letter of Jude for the next six weeks. We're going to do that in six sessions because as I've outlined this book, I have seen six clear distinctions here 
let me give you an overview from kind of a Google Earth perspective. You'll notice in verse 1 and 2 that before Jude ever gets to his call to contend for the faith, in verse 1 and 2, he talks to them about being called to the faith. Then in verse 3 and 4, he encourages the church to contend for the faith. And then in the rest of the book, verses 5 through 25, Jude gives four aspects of contending for the faith. Verse 5 through 10, contend in light of judgment that awaits the heretics. Verse 11 through 19, contend against the predators within the church. Verse 20 through 23, contend for yourself and one another. And then verse 24 through 25, contend because of the sovereign grace of God. Uh, This is going to be an excellent study because this is an excellent, timely book for us to consider as a church. So let's read it together this morning. And to read it, I've asked Bruno to come and read it for us. Please follow with me, this is God's word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they 
like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So our sermon text for today is the first two verses. According to the custom of letter writing in the ancient day, Jude begins by introducing himself, the author, the recipients, and the greeting. It's, it's very common. Read any one of Paul's or Peter's letters. They do the same thing. Author, recipients, greeting. So let's not waste our time here. Let's go on to the substance of the letter and go from three to the rest. Are you ready? No, friends, if that's how you read your Bible, you are missing some of the most glorious parts of the Bible. Because Jude, and by the way, you can go ahead and start right now counting the number of times that I say James. 
instead of Jude. And I apologize in advance. Jude doesn't merely give his name, talk about who the recipients of this letter are, and greet them. Now, given the substance of what is about to follow, I suggest that Jude is establishing his identity and his authority to address the issue that's going on in the church. In other words, he's saying, this is who I am. And then before he addresses the controversy going on in the church, Jude wants to remind the church of two things who you are and what you have as those who are in the faith. So he identifies himself and then speaks to them about their identity, who they are and what they have. Friends, as we consider the introduction to Jude's letter this morning, my prayer is that every one of you will understand your true identity that you will understand who you are and what you have as a Christian. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, then my prayer is that you will see and consider what you could be and what you could have by faith in Jesus Christ. So, verse 1, Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude identifies himself here by saying, this is who I am, and I suggest to you that he does it in two ways. First of all, he does it with humility. Notice that Jude explains who he is in two ways. First, he says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, and then secondly, a brother of James. He does that because Jude is a very common name. It would like being Joe in America or Bruno in Brazil. To be Jude in Israel was one of the most common names of all of the Jewish boys because it has to do with more formally Judah or Judas. And Judas at that time wasn't anathema. So Jude is the same as Judah, which as we know was part of Israel. And being such a common name, Jude further identifies himself as, look there in verse 1, a servant of Jesus Christ. And this certainly is a term of humility. To be the servant of Jesus Christ is to identify himself primarily as one who is associated with Jesus Christ. But that term servant softens it a bit, doesn't it? We've talked about this in other letters It's the Greek word doulos, which is more appropriately in that particular day, not just a servant, but it's a slave. In that Greco-Roman world, slaves were bought and sold as property. And here Jude says, I'm the slave of Jesus Christ. Slaves were viewed as living tools, men and women who were employed in various industries Slaves didn't have any rights. They didn't have any freedoms. All of the rights over their life and their property belong to their master, in which Jude's case is his master, Jesus Christ. 
And so he gives this as a term of humility. He introduces himself as the servant or slave of Jesus Christ. It's not just a term of humility, but it's also a term of honor. Because if we read the Old Testament, the servants of God were all of those that God had called to serve him among their people. And so the Old Testament speaks of the leaders like Abraham and Moses and David as the servants of God. And here, Jude is calling himself as a servant of Jesus. And for the apostles in that day, it was a great honor to be the slave of Jesus Christ, the servant of God. But more than that, Jude is identifying himself not only with humility, but with authority. Now you say, I really don't see anything here that screams authority. Well, read it again. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. The reason that he mentions James is because in that particular context, everyone knew James as being the leader of the church at Jerusalem. And this is one of the reasons, probably the primary reason, that we believe that this letter was written to Christians, early Jewish Christians, in and around the area of Palestine. Because Jude and his family and James, all of the apostles remained in Jerusalem and led from there. So what Jude is doing here is saying, I'm the brother of James. Now remember, James, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says was a, quote, pillar of the church along with Peter and John. In Acts chapter 15, James was the one who led the council at the church at Jerusalem. James is the one who was the writer of the epistle of James. And so Jude connects himself to his biological brother, James, to tell all of those Christians that he has the credibility and authority to address the issues that are going on in their community. Now, what's interesting about this is that James, the pillar of the church, the writer of the epistle of James, the leader of the church at Jerusalem, was the biological brother of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That makes Jude the biological brother of Jesus of Nazareth. Now go back and read verse 1 and ask yourself the question, why didn't Jude lead with that? He doesn't. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. He makes no claim to be the brother of Jesus here, though he was. For example, take a look at Mark chapter six. Uh, yeah, Mark chapter six, if you would like. Jude is listed there as one of the brothers of Jesus in Mark six. Is not this the carpenter's son, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not all his sisters here with us? 
See, G Jude was the biological brother of Jesus mentioned here and elsewhere as Judas or Jude. The fact that he's listed toward the end of his brothers means that he was probably one of the youngest along with Simon in, in Jesus' family. And remember that throughout the Gospels, we know something about the brothers of Jesus. What did the brothers and the biological family members of Jesus think about him? They thought he was, quote, out of his mind. They didn't believe that he was the Son of God. So Jude didn't believe the claims of his brother. But after the resurrection, in Acts chapter 1, we find Jude, along with his brothers and sisters and mother, and the eleven disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 1, they were all together and his brothers there, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus. So Jude, the writer of this little letter, is the biological brother of Jesus, and he keeps that down as if to say, that's not why I'm coming to you. I'm not coming to you based on my family. I'm coming to you as the humble slave of my biological brother, Jesus. And I'm coming to you based on the authority of the church at Jerusalem where I serve along with my biological brother, James. Jude introduces himself with both humility and authority. And then continue in verse 1, now that he's introduced himself, he identifies the recipients. Verse 1, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude wants to speak to these Christians about who they are. And notice he doesn't talk about them according to their location. He makes no mention of what church they're part of or what location they're in. But Jude speaks to them about their identity as Christians. I believe he's doing this because he wants them to remember who you are in the midst of the attack of the faith that's going on within their church. Remember that you are those who are. And then Jude mentions three things. I want you to notice something about all three of those things before we deal with them individually. Notice that each of these three things is done by God to these Christians. Those who are called are beloved in God, are kept. The passive tense of the verb means that it's God who is the one who is at work, and he's at work on their behalf. And then I also want you to notice that these two verbs, beloved and kept, they're in the perfect tense 
which means that this is an action completed in the past that has ongoing results. A perfect tense verb says this is over and done, but the results continue perfectly completed forever. So friends, this identity is something that God has done for them and it is a complete, perfect identity of who they are and what God has done. So let's take them individually. They are those who are called, beloved, and kept. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel right there in a nutshell. I'm so glad we didn't skip over this, aren't you? The good news of the gospel is that our identity is determined by what God has done for us, not what we have done for God. And here Jude says, you are those who are called by God, to God. When we read the old, when we read the New Testament, this concept of the called comes up many different times. And it's always linked with various prepositions. For example, the New Testament being taught, uh, talks about being called by God, being called by Christ, by the Spirit, by the Gospel. These are those who are called out of, out of darkness, into the light. To be called is to be called to something. The New Testament talks about it this way, being called to belong to Jesus, called to be saints, called to life, faith, hope, fellowship, holiness, glory. And the New Testament says that we're called through something, called through the means of the preaching of the gospel. Friends, even the word church has as its root the concept of being called. The church are those who are called out and called together. There's no being the church without being called Those who are in the church are all those who are the called. And we find this most predominantly in 1 Peter chapter 2. Please look there in your Bibles as we consider what it means to be called. Jude says one of the major emphases of your identity is that you are the called and here's what Peter says about that. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. What is our identity? Who are we as Christians? Well, Peter says it like this. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who, what? Called you out of darkness 
into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's what it means to be called by God. Jude reminds these Christians and all of us that to be called by God is to be called to be His people, to proclaim the excellencies of Him to the entire world. Friends, to be called by God is the great mystery and glory of the sovereign, elective grace of God because Romans chapter 9 teaches us that God calls those whom He will save out of darkness to Himself through the gospel in order that God's purpose of election might continue. But then Romans chapter not, uh, 10 immediately tells us that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So which is it? Is it God who calls us or is it we who call on him? Answer, yes. It's both. That is the great mystery of how God works. God is sovereign over His call. And yet we are responsible to respond to Him by calling on the name of the Lord. And so Jesus said, Whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me will never thirst All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Christian friend, you are part of those whom God has called out of darkness to himself, for his glory. Your calling didn't start with you. It was a response to God's calling of you. Non-Christian friend, God is calling you right now to himself through the preaching of his word and the presentation of the gospel here today. Will you call on his name and respond in repentance and faith? I pray so. Identity number one is that they are those who are called. Identity number two, continue to look there in verse one. Those who are beloved in God the Father. Not only are they called, but they are beloved. You want to know who you are? Next time you look in the mirror, Christian, whatever you think about yourself, you look yourself square in the eye in that mirror and say, I know who you are. You have been called by God and you are beloved 
in God the Father. You, Christian, are beloved in or by God the Father. Again, this is a perfect tense verb, which means that God has done something in the past that has secured you in his love and that that is a completed action with ongoing results. God has completely, perfectly loved you in an unconditional, unbreakable, eternal covenant. You, Christian, are the object of God's love. That's who you are. That's what we read earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 7, wasn't it? God said, I didn't make you my treasured possession because you were the greatest nation on earth, he says to Israel. He said, I did it because I love you. And I'm keeping an oath that I made with your fathers. Friends, God is still keeping that oath. And he's keeping it through the seed, the son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who will come to Jesus by faith will be united with Christ by faith in an eternal, unbreakable, unconditional covenant. And because God loves his son, then you are the object of God's love in Christ. That's what Rob kept reminding us of this morning from 1 John chapter 3 when he said, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. You see, the love of God makes us his children. The love of God changes our position, changes our identity. We start out as the sons of Adam, sinners separated from God. If you think that everybody is automatically the sons and daughters of God, then we need to read our Bibles again. We don't start out right with God. We start out as the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve in sin, separated from God. But God's not content to leave us there, friends. God acted. God set his love on his people, called them to himself, demonstrated his love through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. Listen to 1 John chapter 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation the satisfaction, the complete over and doneness of sin. 
That's how God loved us. And because of that love, it changes our identity. Listen to Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, listen, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We're no longer slaves to the law, but we're sons. And if sons, then we're heirs through God. Jude says to those Christians and to all of the Christians in this room, you want to know who you are? You're not just called by God, but you are beloved in God the Father. You are the object of God's love that has transformed your status and your identity. You are now the sons and daughters of God and your heirs of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. That's who you are. And in the context of a church that's being attacked from the inside, you can just hear Jude saying, remember that and don't let anything take you away from that. He gives them a third identity, not only called and beloved, but the third identity, look there in verse one, is that they are kept for Jesus Christ. The same God that calls you is the same God that keeps you. Ah, listen, friends, this is the doctrines of grace in a nutshell here. This is Reformed Theology 101 sitting here right before us. Jude talks about here in verse 1 that God is the one who keeps us for Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. Jude says in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. And then look at verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So which one is it? Does God keep us or do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Answer? Yes. Both. You see, the Bible teaches that all true Christians will persevere in the faith. We will keep repenting, keep believing, keep ourselves in the love of God. Why? Because along with persevering as a saint, we are preserved by the power of God. It is God who keeps you. And notice here that we're kept for something. Look in verse 1. You are those who are kept for Jesus Christ. That's worth a day of meditation in and of itself. Kept for Jesus. Why does Jude put it that way? Well, not only because it's true, because it has incredible 
significance. Christian friend, you are kept by God for Jesus in answer to Jesus' prayer. Look with me at John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus is in the garden. He's praying for, this is before he was crucified. He's praying for his disciples on earth then, and he widens that to all disciples of all time. What's on the heart of Jesus in this prayer? He's asking for something very specific. Look in verse 6. He tells his father, Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Talk about an identity. Hey, Christian, God gave you to his son. I've, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Keep reading. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Look at verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. What's Jesus praying for those who believe in him? Look at verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they might be one, even as we're one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that scripture might be fulfilled. That's Judas. Verse 15. I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. When Jude says, Christian, your identity is rooted in the fact that it is God who keeps you. You are kept for Jesus Christ. Jude is referring to the fact that God is answering Jesus' prayer to keep you. That means you are kept not only in the faith, but you are guarded against the enemy. Ultimately, why do Christians persevere in the faith? Because God keeps them and God guards them. That's who you are. And that's something for which we can give incredible praise and gratitude to God. But the reason we're kept is for Jesus Christ. Here is the Father giving His Son his inheritance. 
Psalm chapter 2, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the end of the earth your possession. When Jude refers to Christians as those who are kept for Jesus Christ, he's saying that the church is the inheritance that God has kept, preserved, and guarded for his son. That possession that comes from every tribe that we see in Revelation chapter 7, when the John said, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. Christian, you're going to be there from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Christian, you're kept for Jesus as his inheritance. That's Jude's big point here. Before he ever gets into contend for the faith, Jude says, you got to understand who you are. You're those who have been called to the faith. And God has done all the work necessary. He's the one who called you. He's the one who loves you. And he's the one who keeps you. It's all of grace. We find this most beautifully articulated in Romans chapter 8, don't we? We know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are, are you ready? Order of Salutis, the golden chain, For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And what will we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? What's going to separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because God has done everything to save you, make you part of this faith. Yeah. You know, identity, who you are, it's everywhere in our culture right now, isn't it? Sociologists speak of the big eight identities. Age, ability, race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, religion. Our identity is very important to us. And our culture encourages us to create our own identity. Be whoever you are, want to be. Identify as whatever you want. But the Bible teaches us something different. 
The Bible says we don't choose our identity. We're given an identity by God. Non-Christians, the Bible says your identity is the son of Adam, a sinner separated from God under the penalty of death and hell. But for all who will come to Christ, God gives us a new identity. He says, you are those who are the called, those who are beloved in God the Father, and those who are kept for Jesus Christ. That's who you are. And Jude says here at the very beginning of his letter, don't let anything pull you away from that. Why? Because as the called, here's what we have. Look at the end of verse, or pardon me, in verse 2. Here's what we have based on who we are. We have mercy, peace, and love. Sure, that's used throughout the the New Testament in about every letter as a common greeting, but friends, just because it's common doesn't make the sentiment cheap. Jude is praying that these Christians will increase in their understanding of what they have based on the gospel, what they have based on who they are, and what do they have? What every heart really longs for, what you really want for your kids, what you really need when you're in the midst of conflict. They have mercy. They have peace. And they have love because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to explore how those three things are worked out through the rest of the letter and how we can use both mercy, peace, and love as we contend for the faith and contend for one another to stay in the faith. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that we have seen clearly this morning that for all of those who will repent of their sin and come to Jesus Christ by faith, that you have given us an identity. We're the called. We're those who are beloved. We're those who are kept. That just causes us to melt in humility, to think that we are the objects of such love and grace from you. We don't deserve this. We know how much it cost for you to call us and love us and keep us. It cost the life of your son. What love that is. We worship you. We praise you this morning for the love and grace that we've seen displayed in this text. We pray that this week, we would live out of this incredible, glorious identity that you have given to us. May we bring you glory by living according to who we really are instead of who the world says they want us to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.